Hello all, and a very warm welcome from a very chilly North Wales to this week's episode of the True Crime Enthusiast podcast, episode number 16. So this is Paul, the True Crime Enthusiast. I hope you're all well this week. Ease back into work by now, and still sticking to any New Year resolutions that you made? My advice is, don't be too hard on yourselves. We're here for a good time, not a long time after all. As you hear this, I'm midway myself through dry January. And I've got to admit, although I'm feeling good for it, I'm positive and committed about doing it. I am looking forward to February because there's a pint with my name all over it there on the 1st. If you are doing any resolutions, giving up the fags or weight loss or whatever, best of luck with it all. As always, I thank you guys for taking time out to join me and your continuing support, listens and reviews mean the world. Many thanks also for the continuing reviews that the show gets on iTunes. I'm bowled over and I do appreciate each and every one. On top of an incredibly busy week, because this week's episode has taken quite some writing and research, I'm sure you'll see what I mean when we launch into it in a short while. But I haven't managed to seek out any new podcasts to myself, but I have managed to catch up with the latest episodes of some great ones that I've listened to for a while. I just may not ever have mentioned them on here yet, but I'll change that right now. So I've caught up with Extraordinary Stories this week. It's one I'm sure a hell of a lot of you will know and you'll already be familiar with. If not, well, it's well worth checking out because it really does what it says on the tin and gives you some of the most extraordinary and thoroughly entertaining tales that you'll ever hear. And it's delivered by a jovial host named Barry who's got one of the greatest sounding voices in Podland. Yeah, he's up there with Tyler... Cambo, Mr. Case File, Broad from Felon, and a few others. You know what I mean, I'm sure. And True Crime Sweden I've enjoyed this week also. A few weeks ago I mentioned how good I thought True Crime Finland was. I love these Scandinavian crimes, and I don't know anything about them, so I jumped right into this one. I find True Crime Sweden consistently excellent. Great and intriguing cases I'd never heard of. Superb research, great delivery. The kind of thing that you listen to and think... Right, I'll have another episode of that, and you become an instant fan. I highly recommend both. If you haven't already checked them out, then please make each a stop. The hosts are also active on social media, and they always welcome any interaction, and they can be found by looking up Extraordinary Stories and True Crime Sweden. I'll put links to the podcasts up with the show notes this week too. So my own episodes for the past few weeks have seemed to have been getting longer and longer, This is not me loving the sound of my own voice. I happened to see a thread about this online recently, and one of the quotes I saw was, I believe an episode should be as long as it needs to be, which I'm in wholehearted agreement with that statement. I won't shy away from a complex and detailed case just because it may end up running longer than Gone with the Wind. If it's a case that has my interest, then it's in as much detail as I can give because I believe that you have to do these things justice. This week's case, I believe, is one of these. I'm not sure if it's already been covered by any true crime podcasts already. I did have a search, I couldn't find it, but then I just may have missed it. If it has, uh, apologise guys. I never like to tread on people's toes. If someone's already covered a case, then I never normally like to recover it myself. I think it's they've probably done a much better job than I could, so best left alone. This month marks 37 years since the Yorkshire Ripper was captured. While we're all familiar with the Ripper case, at around the same time that Sutcliffe began his official murder spree, 1975, 
another killer terrorised the streets of one of the cities that Sutcliffe was to strike in just two years later, the city of Manchester in England. His crimes spread fear across the district of North East Manchester and were to cost the lives of at least three young women who were killed in a horrific manner. I say at least because I believe that there could have been other victims. Yet this case may or may not be one you've heard of. Perhaps it was because it was overshadowed by the ongoing hunt for the Yorkshire Ripper which was happening at the same time and which tends to dominate crime features from that era. Despite this, in my opinion it's one of the more high profile cases that I've featured on the podcast to date. As you can imagine, it's a harrowing case and to that extent, please be advised that this week's episode may contain details of crimes that the listener may find upsetting or disturbing. With that in mind, please get comfy and join the true crime enthusiast as we take a look back at the story of the Beast of Manchester. On New Year's Eve 1974, 15-year-old Leslie Stewart set off to meet her boyfriend of only a few weeks, William Burke, at a New Year's Eve party at the former Phoenix Hotel in the Moston district of Manchester. But she was never to arrive at that party. Sometime after getting out of a car in Ten Acre Lane that evening, she vanished into the darkness. When Leslie, who was a popular girl and former Rose Queen at her local church in the district of Harperhay, when she failed to return the next day, her frantic mother reported her to police as missing. A mass search got underway, and by the 3rd of January 1975, hundreds of local people had joined police in searching for Leslie, but despite this mass search that utilised police frogmen and tracker dogs as well, no trace of her was to be found. Several appeals were made both locally and in the nationwide press, but nothing. It was treated as a missing persons inquiry, although many experienced officers and the press suspected that Leslie hadn't gone off on her own accord with someone, but rather that she'd come to some harm. It was a set of circumstances that was repeated seven months later in the same district of Moston just a mile or so from where Leslie Stewart had last been seen. Shortly before midnight on Saturday 20th of July 1975, 17-year-old Wanda Scarlett left her job as a barmaid at the Lightbound Hotel in Moston and set off on her way home to nearby Lightburn Road where she lived with her parents. She was never to arrive home. The following morning, police found her naked body partially hidden on a building site just yards from her parents' house, and the police officer who was first on the scene, Leonard Starkey, was years later to describe his findings. Whoever had done this had smashed her face with concrete slabs beyond all recognition. I found it unfathomable that a human being could do that to another human being. Wanda had been savagely attacked, and the body had been hidden half-heartedly, covered with a piece of cardboard and some rubble. Her clothes had been ripped from her body and were taken from the scene, and Wanda had been so badly beaten that her head had been literally shattered from the force of repeated blows, leaving her virtually unrecognisable. A heavily blood-stained lump of concrete nearby was later determined to have been the cause of these grave injuries. Wanda also had her own socks tied tightly around her throat and had been repeatedly kicked with a maniacal rage in the genitalia, although had not been raped. 
Now, if this doesn't sound shocking enough, and enough to make you think this already, then perhaps it was one wound out of the many that stood out and made police wonder what kind of a maniac they were hunting for. Wanda's right nipple was missing. It had been bitten off. Teeth marks were visible on the body still. While an investigation got underway, there was one collective thought in the minds of detectives hunting Wanda's killer. Was the person who'd done this responsible for the disappearance of Leslie Stewart? Two girls of similar ages, only a few months apart and a very small geographical distance. Surely they had to be connected. Wanda's body had been partially hidden, although half-heartedly, and police now sadly suspected that Leslie's body also lay hidden somewhere nearby. One person, apart from the killer, knew beyond doubt who was responsible, because Wanda's killer was about to boast of his crime the following day. Trevor Joseph Hardy was drinking with his younger brother Colin in a pub called the Albion in the nearby district of Middleton when news of the brutal murder had got around the neighbourhood the following day, Sunday the 21st of July 1975. It was pretty much the only topic of conversation as police activity was everywhere. Unable to resist, Hardy drunkenly boasted to his brother Colin that he was the killer that police were searching for and Colin had no reason to disbelieve him. Hardy had a horrendous history of violence and offending, and was only a few months out from his latest prison sentence. He'd been born in Moston in 1946 into a respectable, hard-working family, but the boy was always destined for trouble, even from the time he started school. From age eight, he was always bringing notes home from teachers in school about his bullying or violence, and actually received his first criminal conviction the same year on a charge of housebreaking, aged eight. This started a cycle of Trevor being subject to every category of judicial punishment that there is. He was in approved schools, remand homes, borstals. His brother Colin, who was some years younger than Trevor, would claim that he was never ever there. He was always either in approved school or Borstal or some institution. These institutions obviously didn't do much to control or temper Hardy, for he was reported to have absconded from incarceration at least 14 times. He'd be out on the run, start thieving, get caught, then abscond, and this continued in a loop for years. In the periods when he was in a normal school, he was remembered as being a disruptive pupil that would try to intimidate teachers and pupils alike. He once tried to throttle a female teacher after she had slapped him after he'd issued a foul-mouthed torrent of abuse at her. So he's already a delightful character, I'm sure you'd agree. Former pupils who attended St Mary's Road Secondary School in Manchester's Newton Heath district, where Hardy attended periodically when he wasn't put away, Remember him as being a nasty boy who became an evil young man. He was a violent offender and all who knew him were intimidated by him. One ex-pupil recalled, His mere presence was enough to put people on edge. Trevor was small but incredibly strong. He was a hell of a scrapper, impossible to put down in a fight. When Hardy was 15, he was convicted on the charge of robbery with violence and after asking for another 23 burglaries to be taken into consideration, all having been committed within that month, he was jailed for a year. 
the judiciary took the step of deeming Hardy such trouble that they sent him to an adult prison. Disregarding the shame that his family felt as a result of his actions, Hardy instead revelled in this and he used it to increase his hard man status. He was forever boasting of his skill in burgling premises and the fact that he even prided himself on sticking solely to taking cash from his robberies, ignoring any valuables or items that may be traced back to him. Yet he couldn't have been much of a master criminal due to his multiple convictions. When he did come out of prison, he worked only sporadically in lawful employment anyway, as a builder's labourer, and then he was always supplementing his income with petty crime. The proceeds of which were used drinking in pubs around the Moston area, the majority of which he would inevitably end up being banned from due to his constant brawling in them. He had a hair-trigger temper, and alcohol would often set this off. Trevor's mother, Edith Hardy, described her thoughts on why this was. We always knew there was something wrong with Trevor. Even as a child, he frightened me. It all stems from an accident he had when he was a child. Apparently, a sliver of bone was dislodged in his head, and sometimes it presses on part of his brain. It's when that happens that he erupts. When you get excited, or when you've drunk a lot of alcohol, your brain expands slightly. It's then that the bone touches the brain, and so triggers the violence. Hardy got only increasingly more violent in his brawls, and he began carrying a knife on his person constantly, at least once stabbing a fellow drinker in the leg during a row, a wound that only narrowly missed his victim's artery. But his most savage attack was yet to come. When he was in his mid-twenties in 1972, Hardy was out drinking in a pub in Moston one night with a friend of his, Stanley O'Brien, when a row erupted over whose turn it was to pay for a round of drinks. After an argument, Hardy left the pub and returned with a pickaxe, attacking Stanley with it and injuring him so severely that not only would Stanley never work again, but he was to die less than two years later, with his family convinced it was as a result of the injuries Hardy had inflicted upon him. Hardy received a five-year prison sentence for wounding with intent as a result of this attack, despite the ludicrous claim that he'd been framed for this. No murder charges could be brought against Hardy for O'Brien's death, because the laws of England and Wales state that a charge of murder can only be brought against a person if the victim dies of the injuries within a year and a day of the assault. So I hope by now you get the impression that this is a seriously nasty piece of work, not liked and massively feared. A bully, basically. Hardy eventually served two years of this sentence before being released in November 1974. In no way a changed character. More full of hate and rage than ever before. And this hate and rage was directed at two people, Stanley O'Brien the poor ex-friend of Hardy's that he had assaulted with the pickaxe, and a girl Hardy had developed a weird infatuation with, and who was ten years his junior, called Beverly Driver. Hardy had begun hanging about with Beverly and her friends, even though all were so much younger than him, in the classic way that a bully will surround themselves with people they feel they can dominate. He always insisted that he and Beverly were lovers, but she was to claim that this relationship never went further than mild petting. But Hardy was nonetheless obsessed with Beverly, and when he was sent to prison for the violent assault on O'Brien, 
he was not pleased to receive a letter from her ending her relationship with him because she'd found a boy of her own age. And she ended the letter with, I don't want to waste my life on someone like you. This put her on his hit list alongside O'Brien, who Hardy claimed had conspired to frame him for assault. And Hardy was to tell fellow prisoners that he had two reasons to live, to see them both dead. When he was released, he spent the entire train journey back from Albany Prison on the Isle of Wight, back to his mother's house. He spent the whole train journey just repeating over and over, Beverly, O'Brien, to ensure that he didn't lose any of the hatred that he felt. It's some piece of work, that, isn't it? When he did get back to his mother's house, Hardy was outraged to find that O'Brien had died while he was incarcerated, and feeling cheated, yes, feeling cheated, his hatred for Beverly increased. One of the first actions that he did when he was released was to stalk around to her family home and throw an axe through the window. So he was a violent thug, undoubtedly, but had he actually crossed over into murder? Colin Hardy was to recall the day Hardy confessed to him after Wanda Scala's body had been found. He said, We were having a few pints and the question of Wanda Scala came up. Then he suddenly said, I did it. I didn't mean to kill her. I was going to mug her. I only wanted her handbag. I hit her with a brick. She must have had a thin or weak skull. It's true. But I didn't touch her sexually. I got £48 from her and I've still got the handbag. Believe in his brother, because he knew his penchant for unpredictable violence, having seen the aftermath many times. Colin left the pub with Hardy, and the brothers headed back towards the house Colin shared with his then-wife. Both were sobering up now and deep in thought. Colin, who was in more fear than he'd ever been of Trevor, and Trevor, who was regretting his drunken boasting. But there was one way that usually worked that ensured Trevor got his own way violence. He decided that a good hiding would manage to secure his brother's silence. Colin again recalled, we went back to my flat and the next thing I knew he was beating seven bells out of me. He ripped the clothes off me, battered me with a telephone and finally left me senseless and covered in blood on the stairs. There was blood everywhere, even on the ceiling. He wouldn't let my wife call for an ambulance or help me in any way. Then he walked out and he returned ten minutes later, as calm as anything, and ordered her to cook him beans on toast. She did without question, petrified. Unsurprisingly, Colin and his wife were shaken and scared after this, and they were forced to make their home into a virtual fortress, terrified that Hardy would be back to do it again if he became convinced that another beating may be necessary. Colin and his now ex-wife had to resort to using bolts and padlocks on the doors. They were even forced to secure the windows with wire and place bottles along the window sills at night so that they'd be alerted if someone, that someone being Trevor Hardy, his own brother, entered the property. This is the kind of fear that Hardy instilled in people and eventually Colin decided that he had to go to the police with what he knew. So he went to Plant Hill Police Station in Moston to make a statement. Here, he told police all about his brother's claims, and because Hardy was well known throughout the area for his violent reputation, this was a story that could not be ignored. 
Police investigating the murder of Wanda Scala went and arrested Trevor Hardy. Now Hardy was well experienced in being questioned by police and locked up due to his criminal past. And as a result he did not fear a few days in police custody. He was confident that his brother's claim that Trevor had made a confession to Wanda's murder wasn't enough to warrant charges against him. That would be his word against his brother's. Furthermore, he knew that his lover, Sheila Farrow, would give him an alibi for the evening in question. Hardy had met Farrow, who was considerably older than him, some months before and became intimate with her the following evening. On the kitchen floor of a house, a recollection he had of being very poor because they kept being interrupted by an eight-year-old child who kept wandering in to disturb them. Nice that, isn't it? It's just like something out of Shameless, that is. The couple soon lived together in a flat in Smedley Road in the Manchester district of Newton Heath, but both drank heavily and by all accounts had a turbulent relationship, often rowing but always making up, with Farrow being besotted with a violent lover. Every town has a couple like that, doesn't it? It used to be a cousin of mine and his girlfriend many years ago. They used to have some legendary public rows, and when they went, be somewhere else. But the devious criminal mind of Hardy never stopped working, and it occurred to him that he had left evidence on Wanda's body. For indeed, it wasn't an idle boast to his brother, Trevor Hardy had killed her. He'd left teeth marks that he realised may be able to tie him to the crime. Teeth marks is how Ted Bundy was convicted of murder, isn't it? So Hardy devised a plan, knowing that police would request an examination of his teeth. During a visit with Sheila Farrow, Hardy was passed a metal nail file by her, and in secrecy, in the quietness of his cell, managed to, in silence, file his own teeth down to points so that the imprints would not match. A forensic odontology expert was later to claim that the teeth would have had to have been filed down to nearly gum level for this to be possible. Now I can understand the human instinct of survival and desperation, but can you imagine the kind of mind that goes to these lengths and through that kind of pain? That's pretty hardcore, isn't it? Hardy was taken to a dentist for a dental check, and although they suspected that he had taken steps to alter the appearance of his teeth, the best match that they could get between his bite shape and the marks on Wanda's body were that they were not inconsistent. So this, combined with Sheila Farrow's claim that Hardy was with her for the entire evening of the night Wanda was killed, plus the fact that police only had the word of his brother that Hardy had confessed, it wasn't enough to bring any charges, and Hardy was released despite police suspicions. This was to prove very costly. On the 6th of March 1976, Hardy attacked 20-year-old Christina Campbell as she used the ladies' toilet of the former King's Arms Hotel on Manchester Road in Hollingwood. In the struggle, her throat was gripped so tightly that Christina bit off part of her own tongue due to the pressure he applied. Fate must have intervened because before she could be killed, Hardy was disturbed and fled. Three days later, on the 9th of March 1976, 17-year-old Sharon Mossoff had been to a works party at Bolton's Packhorse Hotel, 18 miles away from the district of Failsworth where she lived with her father Ralph and stepmother Jackie. Sharon was a happy and well-liked girl, attractive, 
and one who had just three weeks earlier started work as a cashier in a discount wallpaper shop in quite near proximity to her home. Now the shop's no longer there now, a Morrison supermarket instead stands on the spot where it was, and it's right next to a section of the Rochdale Canal that flows underneath Poplar Street in Failsworth. So that night, the firm had held a party for staff to celebrate record sales, and Sharon had attended but left to catch the night bus home. Sharon had asked her father and stepmother if they wished to go with her, but trying to give the young girl some freedom and a taste of responsibility in adulthood, they declined and told her to go and have a good time with her new friends. At about 11pm, Sharon called home and spoke to her stepmother to let her know that she was on her way home and for her not to wait up, and asked Jackie which bus she was to take to get home. After being told, Sharon then caught the number 98 bus from Bolton Bus Exchange, which dropped her off at Manchester Piccadilly shortly before 1am. She then caught a second bus which dropped her off some minutes later at Manchester Broadway, which is less than half a mile from her home. From here, Sharon would have had to have walked into Failsworth past Marlborough Mill, which is where she worked, and up a canal-side footpath almost within sight of her house. That evening, Sharon never made it home. She instead had the misfortune to meet Trevor Hardy. Early the next morning, just at about the same time that Ralph and Jackie had woken and were alarmed to discover that Sharon's bed had not been slept in, a man making his way along the Rochdale Canal footpath to work at a local dairy made a gruesome discovery. Floating face down in the canal, among the debris and rubbish of the then disused lock, was the naked body of a young woman. With all thoughts of going to work gone from his mind, the man contacted police, who arrived at the scene shortly afterwards. When police arrived and the body was removed from the canal, one look at the girl was enough to confirm to police that the initial thought that the still-at-large killer of Wanda Scala had struck again was correct. The young woman looked to be between 15 and 18 years of age, and was again naked with no sign of clothes or handbag in the nearby area. She had severe wounds to the head where she'd been savagely battered, and like Wanda Scala, had a ligature fastened tightly around her neck, this time in the form of her own tights. But if police needed any further confirmation that the killer had struck again, it was in the form of the mutilation to the body. The girl had a vicious stab wound to the stomach, and her left breast had been mutilated. The post-mortem was later to count 64 slash and gouge wounds to the area, which had been done after death and had been done to try to disguise the fact that the killer had bitten off the victim's left nipple. Just as police were at the scene of the murder and the body was still in situ, Ralph Mossoff walked past. As these things do in close-knit areas, Word had got around that there was police activity happening in the area, and Ralph had gone that way to look, fearing the worst. When he did pass the canal bank, Ralph was to describe the moment, what must be any parent's nightmare, many years later for a television documentary. I saw all of the police, and I just broke down. I just knew. That evening... The lead story in the Manchester Evening News was of a murdered girl being found in the Rochdale Canal, and the press were quick to jump onto and highlight the parallels between the victim 
who by the time the story went to press had been identified as Sharon Mossoff and the unsolved murder of Wanda Scarlett nearly eight months before. They were keen to point out the likelihood that the same sex maniac had killed both women, and the press subsequently christened the unknown killer the Beast of Manchester. The investigation into Sharon's murder began in earnest, with detectives eager and determined that this was a killer that would be brought to justice. The local areas were struck with fear now. An unsolved murder in an area always makes people on edge, but with now two murders, people were a bit scared to go out after dark, and sensational names such as the Beast of Manchester didn't help. But it wasn't just the press and locals who considered that the Beast of Manchester was responsible for both murders. As we've said, police did also, and instantly they had a prime suspect in mind for the identity of the Beast already, Trevor Hardy. But Hardy had gone on the run, and he was nowhere to be found in his usual haunts. He was, however, not long afterwards traced, through Sheila Farrow, to a property in Stockport where the couple were living and he was taken into custody on suspicion of murder for the second time. He was soon charged with both murders and was remanded to prison to await trial. Although police considered that they did have the right man in custody, they were far from satisfied that the evidence required for a successful prosecution was complete. But Hardy was to surprise them all. On the evening of Monday the 27th of August, Detective Chief Inspector John Bennion was informed that Hardy had requested a meeting with him. Bennion was to say later of Hardy, He's one of the strangest, coldest men I've ever met. Physically, he's like a whippet, small, but tremendously tough and completely unemotional. Hardy had requested this meeting to hand Bennion a 40-page handwritten statement confessing not only to the two murders that he was charged with, those of Wanda Scala and Sharon Mossoff, but also to the murder of missing Leslie Stewart. Hardy had originally been one of the people questioned over her disappearance back in early 1975, but he was just one of many, and police had no evidence that she had actually come to harm. She was just a missing person. Hardy's confession went into great detail, and included carefully drawn, precise maps of what had happened and where, and described in detail the murders of all three women. It did make for disturbing and cold statements, and you may find some of the following disturbing. The statement claimed that whilst in prison for the attack on Stanley O'Brien, Hardy had received a letter from Beverly Driver. After reading it, he was to say, in self-pity, I sat there with a letter in my hand shaking, with tears running down my cheeks. From that day, I gave up the fight with my demons. No one give a damn. He spent the rest of his sentence brooding about this. His hatred at betrayal consumed him. When he was released, Hardy claimed, The man they had protected society against was out, a far bigger danger than when he went in. I had one reason to live, to kill her. This seething fury came to a head on New Year's Eve 1974. Hardy armed himself with a kitchen knife, went out and got drunk around some of the pubs in Moston that he wasn't barred from, and then went looking for Beverly and her boyfriend. Eventually, 
he found himself near Ten Acre Lane in the district of Harperhay and saw a girl getting out of a car. It was Leslie Stewart. The driver of the car said, Good night, Leslie, and drove off. But Hardy was later to claim that in his drunken state, he had heard the driver say, Good night, Beverly. He then approached the girl and claimed he had said, Hello, Beverly, do you remember me? And then without warning, punched her savagely in the face. He then kicked her several times as she lay on the ground and then stabbed her in the throat with what he claimed was a single strike, but which severed her carotid artery. Watching her die, he realised that he hadn't just killed Beverly at all. It was a different girl. But in his statement, he claimed, I didn't give a damn after what I'd been through. It's statements like that that dispel any kind of attempt to understand Hardy's killings, except for the single fact that he did them because it gave him pleasure and self-gratification. Utter evil selfishness. Following the murder, Hardy then claimed he had dragged Leslie's body into nearby undergrowth, where he partially covered it with grass cuttings and foliage. He then calmly returned home and watched the Andy Stewart Hogmanay show on television with his mother. I had to look up who Andy Stewart was. He was some Scottish singer and entertainer of the 50s and 60s apparently. It sounds a thrilling show. It's not Jules anyway, is it? Just as calm as anything after killing a young woman, an innocent stranger so horribly, for his mother never suspected a thing. Hardy was how he always was with her. Later that evening... When everyone was in bed, Hardy got up and crept out of the house and returned to where he'd left Leslie's body. He then carried it further into the undergrowth and buried it completely with soil and turf at a spot quite near to Mostenbrook High School. Over the next few months, Hardy was to revisit the grave several times to desecrate and mutilate Leslie's body further, even once removing her ring and watch which he then gave to Sheila Farrow as a present. At other times, he used an axe to remove Leslie's head, which he claimed he'd thrown into a lake that had been subsequently filled in. The head was never recovered. He also on different occasions removed the feet and the hands of the body, by hand disturbingly, and he'd scattered the parts. Hardy claimed this was solely to prevent identification of the body, but in my opinion, this is a blatant excuse and an untruth. It's my opinion that Hardy derived some form of sexual gratification from doing this. Maybe a sick feeling of power or morbid fascination. It would likely have given him a sexual thrill. Or else why keep visiting the grave? Nonetheless, Hardy claimed in his statement that it was solely to destroy any evidence, saying, The body on the canal got dissected to destroy the evidence. Kiddies from Mostenbrook School have actually seen me at the grave. Following Hardy's confession, the remains of Leslie's body were found exactly where he had claimed them to be. His maps were that detailed. They were unable to identify the body as it was just by that time a partial skeleton, and this is long before the days of DNA profiling. But there was no reason to question his tale of the victim being Leslie. Then it was on to Wanda Scala's murder. On the night of Wanda's murder, Hardy claimed that he had been drinking after having a furious row with Sheila Farrow. He'd run out of money and decided to mug Wanda. He said, 
The murder started as a robbery, but the girl struggled. I hit her on the jaw, she collapsed, and I carried her round behind some boards and left her. Then I went back, tried to strangle the girl, but couldn't. So I picked up a brick and hit her in the face four times. I'd been reading a book about the Heath case and decided to make it look like a sex attack. Trivia buffs, Hardy was referring to the celebrated British murder case of Neville Heath, hanged in the 1940s for the savage sex murders of two women, in case you ain't aware. Again, I believe this is an excuse. Claiming to try to make it look like a sex attack is Hardy's way to try not to admit that he derived sexual thrills from the killing. Hardy then took and kept Wanda's bloodstained clothing and handbag as grisly trophies, which he kept stored in a secret compartment tunnelled into the kitchen wall of the house that he and Sheila Farrow shared. Hardy then made Farrow wash and launder the bloodstained clothing that he was wearing that evening, and told Farrow to give him the alibi of being with her for the entire evening, never leaving her sight. He then told her he had done a girl. I hit her with a brick. It was the following day that Hardy had been drinking with his brother Colin, boasted of being the killer, and had then attacked Colin at home, leading to Colin reporting his confession to police. Hardy admitted in his confession, somewhat proudly it seemed, that he had ordered Farrow to smuggle him in a file while he was in custody, which allowed him to beat a dentist's check of his teeth's imprints. By doing this, and with Farrow lying for him, he was released from custody. Hardy next admitted attacking Christina Campbell in the ladies' toilet of the King's Arms pub in Hollingwood, that he had to flee because he was interrupted. He claimed that he had caught both the girl and Sheila Farrow in an embrace in the toilet, a claim that both Christina and Farrow were to deny, and this had enraged him. Chillingly, he added, I throated her. That usually works. Isn't that one of the most cold-blooded things you can ever imagine hearing? Throating someone. Hardy lived rough for a few days after following this attack, in the knowledge that he could be identified and police would be searching for him. This caused Farrow to find them a new place to live, the house in Stockport where Hardy was eventually arrested. Before he again lived with Farrow, however, he had killed for a third time just three days after the attack on Christina. On the night that he killed Sharon Mossoff, Hardy claimed that he'd been in the process of breaking into a business premises when Sharon had walked past and disturbed him. He described to police, I hit her with the handle of the screwdriver on the forehead, just above the eye. I don't know why, but I'd been in a bad mood over Sheila Farrow and that girl in the pub. She started screaming and shouting, so I grabbed hold of her with one hand over her mouth and shoved her into the doorway. I got one hand over her throat and braced myself by putting one foot on the alcove wall behind me. I started to choke her and a couple of minutes later she went limp. Hardy then stabbed her in the stomach with a screwdriver as she lay on the ground then stripped and strangled her further with her own tights and then desecrated the body again to make it look like a sex attack, he claimed, and threw it into the canal. He had then returned to the house that he and Sheila Farrow had shared, and the couple had had sex. Hardy then realised he had again left clues at the scene on Sharon's body, the bite marks. 
and having filed his teeth down once before already, couldn't possibly do this a second time, so therefore he devised another plan. Armed with a metal rivet, at about 5.30am, he returned to the canal where he had thrown Sharon's body and found that it had not yet been discovered. He had left, saying to police, I knew I would have to go back to try to hide the body because of the teeth marks. He stripped down to my underpants and swam out to the body and turned it over. I managed to scrape out most of the teeth marks with a rivet. He had slashed Sharon's left breast a total of 64 times in an attempt to erase the bite marks, but this was a futile effort. It was still identifiable as a bite mark, and the similarity between Sharon's and Wanda's murders in injuries and location meant that police would be calling on Hardy very shortly. Following his arrest, Sheila Farrow was questioned and caved in under interrogation, admitting that she'd given Hardy a false alibi for the night of Wanda Scala's murder. She admitted that Hardy had also told her he had killed Leslie Stewart, that she had accepted the ring and watch that Hardy had taken from Leslie's body, that she had passed him the metal file whilst he was in custody, and that she had cleaned and laundered his wet clothes on the evening of Sharon Mossoff's death. Now there's no evidence to suggest that Farrow was in any way directly involved or present with any of the murders, but the fact remains that however besotted she was with this man, by lying she allowed another two women to be brutally murdered. I believe she should have faced some sort of charges, for at the very least perhaps conspiracy to pervert the course of justice, but police decided to look at the bigger picture here. Despite Hardy's written confession, they decided to use Sheila Farrow as the star prosecution witness to give evidence against Hardy at trial in an exchange for immunity from prosecution and a fresh start under a new identity. She accepted gratefully and for years following the trial, the families of the murdered women were to appeal against this decision and attempt to get charges brought against Farrow. I wholeheartedly agree that she should have faced some form of prosecution for this. What despicable thing to do. Hardy pleaded not guilty despite his written confession when he appeared for trial at Manchester Crown Court in April 1977 before Mr Justice Caulfield. However, just three days into the trial, Hardy changed his plea to one of not guilty to murder, but guilty to manslaughter on the grounds of diminished responsibility. He'd obviously considered his options here, realised that the evidence against him, the confession, the testimony from Farrow, what he told his brother, etc, etc. This was absolutely overwhelming, and this was some sort of ploy to attempt to minimalise his sentence as much as possible. This plea was not accepted by the Crown, and the trial continued. During the trial, a leading psychiatrist, Dr Michael Tarsh, was to testify that Hardy was a woman-hater, who could kill again and is capable of murder undoubtedly at any time and for many years. He was to remark on the casual delivery and lack of care or remorse when Hardy had described what he'd done, and alluded to Hardy deriving an aggressive sexual satisfaction from the mutilation of the bodies. Alcohol was also debated as to being a contributing factor, But plenty of people drink to excess and are a bit of a handful and want to fight the world because they consider themselves a three-pint Rocky after having a few beers, don't they? 
but not all of them savagely kill and sexually mutilate women when they've had a few, though, do they? It was left to the jury to decide whether Hardy was indeed abnormal in the mind and therefore his responsibility for his acts was indeed impaired, or whether he was just a monstrously evil killer who derived pleasure from his crimes. On the tenth day of the trial, it took a jury of six men and six women just 70 minutes to find Trevor Joseph Hardy guilty of murder on all three counts. The courtroom echoed to claps and cheers when these verdicts were delivered. Facing Mr Justice Caulfield, Hardy stood and heard the judge issue him three life sentences to be served concurrently, being told, This is a happy place, but it will be happier without you. Hardy was then taken away to prison, with echoes of, Bastard, send him up here and we'll kill him, echoing from the gallery that was filled with the families of the murdered girls, who were all in attendance to see Hardy face justice. Although Sheila Farrow was an important witness and her testimony was quite damning against Hardy, she received no punishment for shielding him and conspiring to pervert the court of justice, which disgusted the families, as we said. Immediately after the trial, she was relocated to start a new life and faded into anonymity. Her whereabouts, if indeed she is still alive now, are unknown. If she is still alive, she would be well into her 80s by now. In prison, Hardy was to write to the families of the murdered girls, addressing the letters to a nearby social club. In these, he blamed his upbringing for his violent nature, but was never once to offer any remorse for his actions. Most probably because I believe that he had absolutely not one iota of it, instead seeing himself as the victim of injustice. He largely fell out of the headlines over the years, and has been referred to more than once as Britain's forgotten serial killer, which is kind of true. Hardy is often overlooked and may be an unfamiliar name to many, but then as we've highlighted numerous times here on the podcast, there are also others who are as equally overlooked, aren't they? By 1997, Hardy had served 20 years of of his life sentence, and as he had no minimum term set, he may have been optimistic as to a release being within sight for him. The father of Hardy's final victim, Sharon Mossoff, contacted the then Home Secretary, Michael Howard, after learning of the leaked list of prisoners on a whole life tariff and finding out that Hardy's name wasn't part of this list. This was corrected, and Ralph Mossoff was eventually to receive notification from the Home Office that Hardy would indeed never be released from prison and he never was. Trevor Hardy had a massive heart attack in his cell in Wakefield Prison in Yorkshire, Monster Mansion, as we said last week, on the 23rd of September 2012, and died aged 67 in the prison hospital two days later. He was mourned by no one. His only surviving relative, his brother Colin, had disowned him many years before. Following news of Hardy's death, Ralph Mossoff gave the following comment to the Manchester Evening News. Me and my family think that this is the best thing that's ever happened to us. It's like winning the lottery. We've had a big party to celebrate his death. We feel as though a burden has been lifted from our shoulders, knowing that he cannot come out and do anything to anybody else. We knew he was inside, but you cannot forget something like that. It preys on your mind. 
What he did was cold-blooded murder. He was an animal. An animal indeed, and one that clearly deserves his place in hell. The Hardy was for many years linked with an unsolved murder in Manchester, the 1971 murder of Dorothy Layden. Dorothy was a 17-year-old girl who was on her way home from a Jimmy Ruffin concert in Manchester on the 24th of April 1971 when she was attacked, raped and battered to death with a brick on waste ground behind the site of a former pub in the Collyhurst district in Manchester, the Spread Eagle on Watchdale Road. She was found the next morning. The murder remained unsolved for many years, with people understandably suspecting that the killer was already serving a whole life tariff. Collyhurst is a neighbouring district less than two miles from Moston. The type of victim, the violence used and the use of a brick or a stone, anyone would suspect that this was the work of Trevor Hardy. In 2008, Dorothy's family petitioned to have the case reviewed and it spurred on a fresh appeal. Exhibits from the original investigation were located in storage and subjected to forensic examinations, and a full DNA profile of Dorothy's killer was obtained. It was run through the National DNA Database, and it was not found to match Trevor Hardy. Dorothy's murder remains unsolved, and it's one we'll look at in a future episode of the podcast. But if Hardy wasn't the killer of Dorothy, there may possibly be another murder that he is responsible for. On January 25th, 2010, workmen helping construct the new £100 million police headquarters, again in the Collyhurst area of Manchester, found the skeleton of a young woman wrapped in carpet. Tests revealed that the victim had been aged between 18 to 30 years old when she died and was stripped and killed before her corpse was wrapped in a carpet and dumped in an area that at the time was known as Angel Meadows. Tests revealed that she'd suffered a fractured jaw, a fractured collarbone and fractures to bones in her neck, leading to fears that she was savagely beaten to a pulp. Tests on the bones concluded that the victim was believed to have been killed in the 1970s or 1980s, and this was further narrowed down to being about 1974 to 1975 onwards. This was determined because buried near to the body was a distinctive Guinness sign that was used from around this era, a distinctive 1970s pinafore dress, a blue bra and jumper and tights belonging to the woman were found with the remains, along with a jacket and a single shoe. The skeleton had been wrapped in three different cuts of carpet, orange, blue and dark blue, with the blue carpet appearing to have been cut to fit the interior of a Ford Cortina car with holes for a gear stick. Some of the carpet was also burnt, meaning that there may have possibly been a fire at the site at some time. The victim, known as the Angel of the Meadows, has never been identified despite inquiries both in the UK and abroad as to her identity. So there's a body hidden on a building site, stripped and with the remains showing signs of having been severely beaten, suspected to have died around 1974 to 1975, killed and buried in Collyhurst, part of Hardy's known territory. This could almost be a carbon copy of the murder of Leslie Stewart or Wanda Scala, had the Beast of Manchester killed before? And if so, why had he never led police to this victim? 
Hardy died just two years after this victim was found, never saying anything. Although he must have been questioned, surely, it wouldn't take Sherlock Holmes to put him as a prime suspect. Was Hardy responsible for the murder of the Angel of the Meadows? I personally think that yes, this murder was the work of Trevor Hardy. The similarities with Leslie Stewart, I think, are too great to ignore. The location, and again the violence that was obviously used, plus the timings that the woman is believed to have been killed, 1974 to 1975, all suggests Hardy to me. What are the odds of two separate killers killing in near-identical fashion, near-identical victims, possibly only months or even weeks apart maybe, in a two-mile distance with no knowledge of each other? Highly unlikely, I think. It would be a hell of a coincidence. I would also reconsider testing the DNA from Dorothy Layden's crime scene again against Hardy's sample. If this no longer exists, then possibly even using DNA taken from his brother Colin Hardy to try to establish a possible familial DNA match with the samples. Mistakes could possibly have been made. and As I said before, I do find it a massive coincidence that a different killer would be responsible for one or both of these crimes. But then again... I may be completely wrong. What do you think of Trevor Joseph Hardy? He's a real monster or what, isn't he? Quite rightly deserving of a whole life tariff, I thought. And I'm convinced that there are more crimes that Hardy was responsible for. Of course, he's now dead and would never face justice for any other crimes. But it may give some families a bit of closure if they were to know. But unfortunately, this is not something ever likely to happen. He's largely overlooked in the text annals of UK crime, and like Erskine and Ireland, who we featured on the podcast before, Hardy has no text dedicated to the study of his case. Yet isn't this surprising when his crimes are so monstrous? I am in no way glorifying his status as some sort of crime superstar. This man was a monstrously evil killer, and wherever he is now, it couldn't have come soon enough. But it is a fact that crimes such as these are deemed sensational enough to sell books. True crime is, after all, a fascinating subject. It's why I'm making this episode and why you're listening. Through research for this episode, I have managed to source chapters in several books that feature the Hardy case, and there are at least two documentaries that feature his crimes. As I say, I'll put links to all of that up on the show notes for this episode. Hardy's is a case that's been on the fridge blackboard for a while now, and this week has again been an instance of chopping and changing episode cases around. Research purposes sometimes make this necessary, and I found out on Twitter recently that this is not just something that happens to me. Other hosts have the same dilemmas sometimes also, so feel your pain, brothers and sisters. I hope you found this week's case interesting and entertaining, and indeed, I've kept listening throughout. Well, pointless me saying that, because if you weren't listening, you wouldn't hear me say that. I know each week the crime seems to get more and more grisly and horrible, but this is the nature of the beast really, isn't it? I hope to catch you online for some discussions in the True Crime Enthusiast Facebook group about Hardy's case. I always find these entertaining and I really do love to hear people's thoughts and feedback on the cases we cover on the True Crime Enthusiast. So I'll look out for you there. I thank you as always for joining me this week and I shall be back next week. Next week beginning a few week run of Still Unsolved Crimes. I hope you can join me then. So this is Paul, the True Crime Enthusiast, wishing you all a good and safe week 
and I shall speak to you very soon. Take care, thanks guys, and goodbye for now.